This is another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Today, we continue with our series on new drug development. In this podcast, we're talking with Dr. Alan Krasner, who is a chief medical officer at Crenetics, and with Dr. Chris Cook, who is a pediatric endocrinologist. Dr. Cook is Medical Director of Endocrinology and Clinical Development at Crenetics and is currently working on a new drug for pediatric congenital hyperinsulinism. This is a very interesting project that we will be discussing with Dr. Cook later in the podcast. I asked Dr. Krasner and Dr. Cook to tell me a little bit about what they do at Crenetics as Chief Medical Officer and Medical Director. Okay, well, maybe I'll start. Yeah. Um, we are in charge of everything to do with clinical trials of new drug candidates. So what we uh, are primarily uh, responsible for is testing new drug candidates when they're known to be safe enough to test in human beings. Um, usually the first kinds of studies uh, we conduct are called phase one studies. This is when um, our colleagues uh, in various disciplines have tested a new chemical in many different ways prior to us beginning the tests in patients. Uh, Of course, most of the testing that's done prior to clinical testing is safety testing in animals and also in petri dishes, in vitro tests are very important. But they also evaluate, does this chemical do what we want it to do in the biological systems in the laboratory to achieve what we want it to achieve in in patients someday. So there's a lot of laboratory testing that goes into saying this new chemical we've discovered is actually a candidate to be tested in patients as a potential new drug. And so Chris and I are primarily responsible for designing how the tests go in patients, beginning with the initial tests in phase one clinical development. But uh, so in general, what we as the uh, pharmaceutical company does is we work with outside centers of where they specialize in clinical research. And there are particular clinical research centers that specialize in the initial trials in humans, the first in human trials to test new drug candidates. Mm Typically for a phase one study, that center would uh, recruit uh, healthy volunteers. They wouldn't start looking for patients who are uh, a little bit more susceptible to any side effects of a drug. We would start with healthy volunteers and small numbers of healthy volunteers by clinical trial Mm -hmm. standards. And uh, the, the drug would be judiciously administered starting with very low single doses. Um, and what we would do is uh, monitor the patient very carefully before and after dosing, both for safety and also uh, do we see evidence that the drug might be working in the way we intended so to work. So you supervise the, the, or you work with the centers that are, that are providing that, that service. That's right. So a trial, let's say it's in, I don't know, Italy, then mm-hmm. you would work with them and get the information from the... Uh, That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. We, Chris and I, would write the protocol that the and, and work with the center to agree that the <coughs> protocol is correct and appropriate. That's the protocol is the instructions for the site to follow to test this drug. 
Typically, you start with single doses of the candidate drug, and once it's shown, we look at the data from those single doses, and once we've shown that it's doing what we think it is supposed to do and that the patients are tolerating uh, the appropriate dose levels, then we uh, uh, oftentimes move on to multiple doses where the patient takes that drug yeah. for, for every day for, say, 10 to 14 days or so. And then we stop and we look at the safety data and we make sure it looks like it's uh, doing what we want it to do and it's safe. Yeah. So can you briefly walk, walk us through the different stages of development? Sure. And what, um, it was fascinating to me to learn you know, the, the, when you go from discovery to development and that whatever that decision point is, mm -hmm. when we were talking to Stacy. To Stacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once that's done and you go into the development, you take the, 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 pros, the project now and you have different stages. Can you just walk us through the different steps of development and until you get to the point where you say, okay, we're ready for FDA approval or market or whatever that is. Okay. So uh, maybe you could uh, exp you know, explain how we did our SST2 agonist phase one study and how the data from that study uh, helped us decide it was time to go to phase two. This is Dr. Chris Cook. Well, and I can even start kind of taking more of a, a kind of global answer to that. And one of the, this is what I was saying is that one of the special things about Crenetics is that as much as we would like to stay there, there are these stages and that we're all siloed into these various functional roles, there's really a lot of crosstalk that happens throughout. And you see in the lab here and you've seen that discovery is in-house and that Alan and I then kind of take the molecule and bring it into humans. Mm -hmm. But it really is a collaboration with chemistry, biology, and the clinical side throughout all of the processes. And so on the discovery side of things, we have chemistry with Frank and biology with Steve that are leading. So when you say chemistry, that is, explain what that means. That is in <coughs> petri dishes, that okay. is out of humans, that is in <coughs> test tubes and lab experiments to say, we have a receptor on a cell that we would like to target because we believe that that receptor is responsible for regulating some of the um, signaling that could be contributing to a disease state. So we have now a target that we're going after and there's a lot okay. of work that happens in a petri dish to say, we're developing these new molecules, do they even hit the target? Do they bind correctly? How closely do they bind? If they bind, are they actually turning the receptor off or are they just kind of hanging out there? So the chemistry department really does a lot of work to identify many candidates that could so the chemistry is part of the, the, the discovery. Exactly. Okay. And then once we have a few candidates, we then go into animal models and we say, okay. That's the bio what you call mm -hmm. biology. It, okay. Biology and preclinical. Pre okay. And we're saying, can we safely give this to animals? And we're talking about rodents and dogs. But then also, because endocrinology has some very robust biomarkers that are readout signals um, that contribute to endocrine diseases, um, we can say, are we turning these biomarkers off or down? And those are things we actually can measure in animal models. And then once we have these select candidates that we've tested for safety and also these biomarker and animal models, that's when Alan and I are kind of given these drug candidates to take into phase one. So with the SST2 um, compound in particular, that's our 808, we then tested that in healthy volunteers, again, for safety um, and tolerability, but then also to see, importantly, because we're thinking acromegaly, can we turn off 
growth hormone signaling at, um, and the production of a biomarker called um, insulin-like growth factor mm -hmm. one, which contributes to acromegaly. So that was done in healthy volunteers um, in a single ascending dose study where we looked at just a single dose, and then also in a multiple ascending dose study, seeing giving it 10 days to um, healthy humans, can we suppress levels of IGF-1? We found great data, and that allowed us then to say, okay, now we can, with this, have confidence we can go into patients with acromegaly to see if we and can that treat would, that's this. what differentiates stage one from stage two. Well, phase, yes. Sorry, phase one from phase two is going from an animal model to a... To a from phase one to phase two traditionally is from going from healthy volunteers, healthy volunteers. Okay. into now your disease state. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, yeah. but the traditional approach is healthy humans for phase one, and then you go into the disease of interest for your phase two So studies. once you prove it doesn't hurt, you move to kind of cure, mm -hmm. basically. Okay, that's interesting. And that's where you are with CRN 00808. 808, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that molecule. Can you tell me what, uh, how it works and how it's working and what you think the um, prospects are? Or can you, can you actually make that determination? Uh, is, it, is it possible for you to look at where you are now and say, boy, this looks really interesting and here maybe some of the barriers that come in the future or what do you look for? Are those just two general questions? No, no, those are, those are good questions. Yeah. Um, so CRN00808 yeah. is a small molecule non-peptide uh, somatostatin receptor agonist. Um, so um, as you know, the treatments for acromegaly uh, that are out there already include octreotide and lanreotide. Mm -hmm. These are both peptide somatostatin agonists. They work by stimulating to the somatostatin receptor on the pituitary tumor cell, and that causes the cell to secrete less growth hormone, and that helps ameliorate acromegaly. Mm -hmm. This compound we're, we're developing, um, it works in the same way, although it is not a peptide, therefore it is uh, able to be taken by mouth as a pill once a day. Mm -hmm. The octreotide and lanreotide have to be injected. Uh, typically, most patients use these large, large monthly injections, uh, which are painful for many people and also uh, can really impair patients' quality of life. We do believe uh, patients would, uh, a lot of patients would benefit from having an oral alternative to this. And that's what 808 represents, a possible oral alternative. We think it would work in generally the same way as octreotide and lanreotide, although this compound um, actually is very selective for one of the subtypes of the somatostatin receptor, subtype 2. That's the one that's most responsible for growth hormone suppression in the pituitary mm -hmm. cells. The major difference, though, is that, again, the peptides that are on the market now are very large molecules, relatively large molecules. They need to be injected, and they're not suitable for oral, for, yeah. oral ingestion. This is like an old-fashioned medication that's a small molecule. It is designed to be efficiently absorbed by the GI mucosa into the bloodstream mm -hmm. so that it can get into the bloodstream and do its thing on the somatostatin receptor. Um, so we, as Chris mentioned, we have done phase one testing on this, on this uh, drug candidate in healthy volunteers. And in healthy volunteers, 
we have shown that, first of all, it is well-tolerated, although it, like most other drugs, does have side effects, and those side effects are just the same, we believe, as the yeah. side effects you see with octreotide and lanreotide, GI kinds of side mm -hmm. effects that often go away with continued dosing. But we also have the added advantage, and many other kinds of drugs can't look at whether the drug actually works to do what you want it to do this early in development in phase one. We, however, have very nice what we call biomarkers in endocrinology. Yeah. We can measure growth hormone, and we can measure IGF-1 that Chris mentioned, right there in the phase one laboratory with uh, small periods of dosing, and we can show you that this compound does the same thing octreotide does. It lowers growth hormone, and it lowers IGF-1 in healthy volunteers. Mm -hmm. So once you've shown that it's reasonably safe and, and effective in phase one, then you can uh, contemplate going into phase two. Phase two is traditionally done in patients with the disease of interest. Remember, phase one, only healthy going volunteers. Ahead. Our phase two studies that are ongoing now are in patients with acromegaly. And uh, we want to show that this drug does what we expect it to be able to do, uh, as well as, say, octreotide or lanreotide, or in patients who are currently treated with octreotide and lanreotide. The, the main purpose of phase two is to show that, yes, it's, it, it looks safe and effective, but these are not what we would call pivotal demonstrations of safety and efficacy. These are uh, designed to show that it's safe and effective enough for short periods of time in small groups of patients. But what we're really looking at in phase two is the doses. You know, are we uh, on the right track with determining what dose of our chemical is going to be safe and effective mm -hmm. for large groups of people? Once we get through with phase two and we have safety and efficacy and the right dose range determined, then we go into the big trials phase three. So, what, so it's a, there's, a, there's a trigger that says, okay, we, we have this information. Yes. It's enough to, for the regulatory environment to say, okay, this works up to, up to here. Now we move to phase yeah. three. Phase three. Yeah. Yeah, typically what happens, and I'm, I, I didn't mean to gloss over this no, because no, it's a no. long process. I but can imagine. After you finish the phase two trials, you go through several months of analyzing data, interpreting the data, and typically you have a meeting with the FDA yeah. in the, for a U.S. approval yeah. that uh, is called an end of phase two meeting. Yeah. And you go over that data in great detail. And then, and then you present to the FDA, if you think you're ready for phase three, what studies you think are appropriate for pivotal demonstrations of safety so and what, efficacy? So what does a phase three study look like? Let's say for a CRN00808. Well, we don't know no, yet. No, 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 okay, that's But okay. I can tell you a typical phase three study <laughs> yeah. would involve tip, uh, larger numbers of patients. For a rare disease, that would be typically in the hundreds rather than the tens of patients, um, depending on how rare the disease is. Um, and it would uh, generally involve several months of treatment and generally involve a control group, like patients yes. treated with either placebo or with an active control. So like the famous double-blind placebo. Double-blind, placebo-controlled, <laughs> or active-controlled yeah. trial. Yeah. And you would have to have enough patients to show a statistical benefit of some kind. Yeah. And that, that, uh, that you that's often take years. That's probably tricky in the rare disease community, I'm going to guess. Yes. To get enough, because that's usually the argument. Uh, well, you know, we want these drugs, but you, you're asking us for too many people. It, it often so, is a challenge. Yeah. It often is a challenge. Yeah. And, uh, get is it stati uh, excuse me, statistical significance that you're looking for? That's right. right? Yeah. In phase three, that's pretty much uh, assumed. 
that you're going to need to have a statistically proven conclusion that your drug is safe and effective. And then you submit your application to the FDA, and then they look at years and years and thousands of pages worth of data, and they tell you a year later that, yeah. yes, we agree, you're safe and effective, and you can, be, you can now market your drug. Or no, you have to start your trials over again, or you have to do more work. Yeah, uh, it's a long, long process. So, as a clinician, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot with this question, but as a clinician, can you get a sense that this is, and with, with your experience, that this is a drug that actually has a very good chance of su succeeding, or is it not even possible for you to do that until you go through the? I think there's there's two layers to that question. One is you know. I'll, the first question and most direct is that we do have to wait for some of our phase two data and you mentioned the double blind and so one of our phase um, two trials is absolutely blinded and we will mm -hmm. not know the answer to whether our drug is effective in these subjects until the end of the trial until we have that data locked and kind of reported to us to be able to look at because we are blinded mm -hmm. as the sponsors. But the other question, the other answer to that is looking at, from a clinician standpoint, the unmet medical need in this disease space. And we told you about the octreotide that's long-acting, the yeah. lanreotide that are out there on the market, but I don't think it, it should not be um, underestimated the burden that those drugs put on the patient. There are injections that are monthly, that are painful, and also have to be administered by a um, a clinician or a site, so they have to actually travel to get these painful injections. Mm -hmm. And even with that, these are not 100% effective in 100% of the patients. And so as far as looking at the potential for our drug to be better in terms of not only effectiveness, but also the burden on the patient, we absolutely believe that there's space there. This is an oral drug, which is going to be huge in terms of quality of life. Yeah. And then we have a significant amount of robust preclinical and also phase one data that gives us a lot of confidence that our phase two program is, is going to turn out with, really with well. some great results. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope it does. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. We continue now with Dr. Chris Cook and Dr. Alan Krasner. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about barriers and uh, in the work you do. What, what sort of challenges you you face every day so you yeah i'm sure that you you, you walk in the morning in your office and go okay what's what's going to what keeps you up at night you know when you think about these things and what are the challenges of of this kind of work well i think i'll speak for my myself personally first is just the speed these patients need new therapies and especially with hyperinsulinism where it's, it's infants that are effective i just want things I want things yesterday. Sure. And so understanding that there's a process to go through and there's a process for a reason about the safety and getting the preclinical data. For example, the hyperinsulinism program is gonna be in pediatrics. So we need something called juvenile toxicity mm -hmm. studies, which are done in juvenile preclinical models, juvenile rodents, to make sure that in a young animal, things are in safe. Development. Sure. So that ends up, you know, we're just across the hall in another office talking about timelines, and we're looking at developing into healthy volunteers a year from now. And I walk in the door, and I want to give it to, to people tomorrow. Sure. So I think for That's me, that's going to be very frustrating. As it's a staying patient. No? Yeah, sure. Because you see it. Probably you see some immediate benefits, and you, you, yeah, we can't do it yet. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's my biggest thing that kind of keeps me up at night or gets me antsy when I walk in the door is just the speed and knowing that we have the capability to make better medicines that, that have a lot of, yeah. you know, great yeah. potential. How about you, Dr. Krasner? What yeah, no, I completely <laughs> agree that uh, this is a slow, slow it's a process. Um, you know, I think beyond even that, um, despite the fact that it takes years to get answers to your scientific questions that yeah. we need to answer yeah. to get a drug approved. Uh, it's still a very high risk business. You can easily work on a project for many years and it doesn't pan out in the long run for whatever reason. Uh, it's a very, you know, the odd, even in uh, a drug that's in phase two development, um, the odds are still against this ever becoming uh, an approved marketed drug. And that's not because it wasn't uh, properly studied. In fact, it's been studied uh, to the hilt. But what I would say is that there are so many unknowns in drug development that yeah. can occur. So that's probably the biggest challenge, the unknown. Right, exactly. You don't know what you're going to be facing. That's what keeps me up at night. It's not yeah. what we know, because we know a lot. Sure. And as, as drug development goes, using CRN, 00808 as our prototype, yeah. it's been about as de-risked as a medication can be at yeah. this stage in development. So we know its mechanism of action, we know its safety profile, we know its chemistry, we know everything about it that you can know. What we don't know is when you give this patient to a thousand, when you give this drug candidate to a thousand people, will it be safe and yeah. effective? And yeah. that takes many years and uh, to, to answer. So, um, let me ask you from the from the patient standpoint. Uh, do you think there's anything that patients can do to help the drugs, the you know, whether it's working in the public policy, or regulatory, or by increasing awareness of certain things? Is there is there beyond you know the patient centric drug development where you understand what patients need? Just anything that from an action standpoint patients could do to make your job easier? Uh, I mean... I think from the, the patient contribution, um, I think the, the contribution to help the regulatory agencies understand the unmet medical need uh, for some of these diseases, especially in the rare disease. Uh, pediatric hyperinsulinism is extremely rare, and um, understanding the need to go into pediatric subjects first rather than to start traditionally in adults and mm -hmm. show safety there and then march so down. So do you think the FDA has, it's, there's a need to increase awareness in, in the regulatory environment for, to, to help the FDA understand how, that they should be paying more attention to these is that the I think there's some um, contribution the patients can make to understand the impact on the quality of life that these diseases have, That to understand the disease progression. From a patient perspective, I think a lot of these rare diseases, because they're so rare, there's not these big overall reports about what the longitudinal trajectory yeah. looks like. There's not validated quality of life questionnaires that are validated specifically for each disease that can be then reported out in some sort of big PubMed article that sure. a, a regulatory um, person can go and look up on PubMed and get some very rapid answers that are really concrete. It's all, it's the patient's stories that really can can move the needle a lot. And so I'm asking you because we often think as a publication, 
that is patient driven, you know, for to to increase awareness of these diseases, that there's something that patients could be doing to advocate more mm -hmm. in let's say in Washington DC to facilitate Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I believe that's very much the case and I, I think the FDA is more and more open to uh, we've noticed a change. That's yeah. why I'm asking the question that yeah, they've absolutely. been a lot more paying a lot more attention to to rare diseases in general and and yeah, I think so there are some initiatives that are moving um, that way, so it's pretty interesting. And uh, some patient groups are meeting with FDA, and that's very, very helpful because what what unless you have the disease, uh, you don't understand the what really what the patients are going through, that's what true. their what their lives are really like. Yeah. Acromegaly is a good example yeah. because there have been treatments for acromegaly out there for many years. Yeah, uh, and so it's very easy for someone on the outside world to assume, okay, acromegaly is a solved problem. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But it turns out when you actually talk to patients on current treatments, uh, there's there's room for improvement. Yeah. And people at the FDA and uh, outside of the patient groups need to understand that. Yeah. I would layer on to that that also patients help us with our trial design. We can come up with the best trial design in the whole planet, but if a patient says, I am not going to stay in the hospital for eight months at a time. That is very important sure. feedback. And sure. yeah. so it's not just the patients talking to the regulatory agencies. It's them having a constant interaction with us as sponsors on what's the unmet need, what's a realistic protocol, what do you want to see as an endpoint, what's important to you. I can do as many blood tests as I want, but if that's not what's really going to be important for someone to actually choose to take the drug, mm -hmm. then it's a non-starter. So that, having that free flow of information is also very important. Yeah. That's really important. We, um, we've been getting some feedback um, on, from patients on our clinical trials and our yeah. sort of development plans, and it's been enormously helpful. Let's continue now with Dr. Chris Cook talking about pediatric hyperinsulinism. So, pedia um, so congenital hyperinsulinism is a... Um, it's a very rare disease. It ranges from 1 in 2,500 up to 1 in 50,000, depending on kind of the global region and the, the region of um, the degree of cosanguinity within each region. And it is um, a disease of low blood sugar. So in spite of it being a very rare disease, it's the most common cause of um, pediatric and neonatal um, persistent hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. So within the first week of life is usually when infants are diagnosed and it's having blood sugars in the fives, in the tens, because there is an excess in, of insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cell. The um, pancreatic beta cell has one of now, I think, 14 known genetic mutations, which all cause an overproduction of insulin secretion regardless of what the blood sugar is. So for you and me, when our blood sugar drops, our insulin secretion is turned off mm -hmm. so that our blood sugar doesn't drop anymore. In these um, patients, the beta cell just keeps churning out insulin and it's in a very dysregulated manner. So there are current treatments on the market that are being used. Um, the only approved drug is called diazoxide, um, which acts on a certain component of the beta cell and stops insulin secretion, but it's unfortunately ineffective in about 50% of patients just based on their genetics. And then we actually off-label use um, short-acting octreotide and long-acting octreotide. Mm. So all of those nasty injections that we're giving to adults, give to little ones. we're giving to very little infants mm. and hoping that um, the action on the somatostatin 2 receptor 
will shut off insulin secretion. And it does in some, but it's also ineffective. Mm. Uh, so what we are developing is a somatostatin 5 receptor agonist, which is specific for the beta cell and not on another cell in the pancreas called the alpha cell. So we're hoping with this now refined and more specific oral um, agonist that we'll be able to shut off insulin secretion in all patients with all genetic forms of hyperinsulinism. And we're also hoping that it's safe enough and effective enough that it can be used in infants and neonates who need it the most. Dr. Krasner and Dr. Cook for taking the time out of, the, out of their really busy schedules to talk to us. This indeed has been a really interesting discussion and I hope very informational for all of you. And stay tuned for our next podcast where we talk about the regulatory environment, also a very interesting subject when it comes to drug development. This is Jorge Fascinetti and you've been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Thank you for listening.